Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Lancet Neurology Podcast. My name is Nikolai Humphreys. Today to discuss a new review of lower urinary tract dysfunction in neurological disease, I am joined on the line by Jalash Panikar, consultant neurologist in Euroneurology at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery and honorary senior lecturer at the UCL Institute of Neurology in London. Jalesh, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Nikolai. Thanks for inviting me for this. Lower urinary tract dysfunction seems to be a common problem in people with neurological disorders. Can you explain briefly why this population is so vulnerable to urinary tract dysfunction? Well, if you think about it, in health, there's a very tight control over the lower urinary tract functions by the central nervous system. And so whenever there is any sort of an insult to the neural tracts that uh, control the functions of lower urinary tract, what emerges is a syndrome of of lower urinary tract dysfunction. So you get symptoms of the lower urinary tract. This reflects the the loss of control over the bladder, which results following this neurological injury. And if you look at it amongst patients with neurological disease, probably one of the most common symptoms that they report, for example, in multiple sclerosis, it's in the the top five of, of symptoms um, and disabilities of the report. So it is quite common in this population. Thanks. Could you describe the symptoms of lower urinary tract dysfunction and give us a sense of the impact these symptoms can have on the lives of patients? So, so once again, if we sort of think about what happens in health, essentially the bladder or the lower urinary tract has two functions. One is to store urine and second is voiding. So what happens following neurological injury and the lower urinary tract dysfunction can be either problems with storage or problems with voiding. And problems with storage can manifest with symptoms such as urinary urgency, uh, frequent visits to the toilet in the daytime, uh, having to get up at night to, to, to pass urine, what we call this nocturia, and uh, incontinence. Whereas the symptoms that occur uh, with regard to voiding dysfunction are symptoms of, of a poor stream, of hesitancy, difficulties in getting the stream to start, an intermittent stream that often stops and start, and a sensation of incomplete bladder emptying uh, once it's felt that voiding is, is, um, is completed. Now, um, in contrast to the first set of symptoms that are often quite apparent to a patient or to a carer, or even to the physician is seeing the patient, the problems with voiding aren't often apparent, especially if it's a chronic process. And it might be voiding symptoms that sort of creep in over a period of time. And, and that's why it's quite essential that, that and though history taking is quite important, it must be backed, especially with the measurement of post-void residual, by a bladder scan to see if indeed there is a degree of voiding dysfunction that often from the symptoms it might be missed. Um, one of the other problems that patients can report is recurrent urinary tract infections. And of course, there are many reasons for this. But in, in individuals who are retaining urine, so that means they're not emptying their bladder completely, it, often it might be that they start manifesting recurrent UTIs. If you think about it, stagnant water is a breeding ground for bugs. And likewise, in the urinary tract, if there is an incomplete bladder emptying, this can predispose to urinary tract infections. And, and in some patients, this might be the this might give you a sort of a hint that there might be a degree of avoiding dysfunction with incomplete bladder emptying or urinary retention. Are the manifestations of lower urinary tract dysfunction related to the underlying pathology? 
so so often it is the case and it reflects the 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 multiple levels of the of the neuraxis where uh, which exert a control over the lower urinary tract and it's now clear that depending on the the site of the neurological lesion that there is sort of an expected or predictable pattern of of lower urinary tract symptoms and dysfunction if one were to go into the neural control of the lower urinary tract, the pons and the pontine micturition center play an important role. And and from a from a, a, a pathological point of view or a pathophysiological point of view, uh, we look, often look at lesions that are above the pons and below the pons. So what we call superpontine lesions, i.e. stroke, maybe Parkinson's disease, the dementia. In conditions like these, it's predominantly storage dysfunction, so symptoms of urgency, frequency, and continence that predominate. And then if one were to perform urodynamics in, 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 in individuals with a superpontine lesion, often it's the truth overactivity that one finds. Now, this is in contrast to lesions in the neuraxis that are below the pons, what we call infrapontine, but above the sacral spinal cord. So this is this is classically your spinal cord lesion. And uh, for example, multiple sclerosis or a spinal cord tumor, where historically the patient can be not only a storage complaint, but also avoiding symptoms. And if one were to do urodynamics, the, the pathophysiological correlates would be not only detrusive overactivity, but also detrusive synchro dysynergia, which is where the detrusive muscle contracts concurrently with a non-relaxing sphincter, and, and which is considered a hallmark, a urodynamic hallmark for a spinal cord lesion. Now, if one were to go further down the neuraxis, so if it's a sacral cord pathology, or something that's infrasacral, for example, the cordae equina, the peripheral nerves, it's predominantly voiding complaints. For, so hesitancy, a fourth stream, or the patient might be in complete urinary retention requiring a catheter to empty the bladder. And Often it's the case that urodynamics might show a hypocontractile or an acontractile detrusive muscle. Now, these are broad generalizations, and there are clearly exceptions to each of these, but these are the sort of expected patterns one would expect to find when there is a neurological lesion. And if it were not the case, then one would then explore other causes that might be contributing to that patient's lower urinary tract symptoms. So, so indeed, it is indeed the manifestation of the urinary tract dysfunction relate to the underlying pathology in the neuraxis. And depending on the site of lesion and the nature of the lesion, the, the lower urinary tract dysfunction uh, might vary. Thank you. Could you talk us through the main steps in clinical assessment of neurological patients with lower urinary tract symptoms? So as in other uh, branches of neurology, or if you look at in medicine in general, um, history taking does form the cornerstone, and um, irrespective of all the tests that a patient undergoes, it, it's often uh, the history that that um, is, uh, is is quite important here. And um, so, a history would cover um, your storage symptoms, your voiding symptoms, the history of urinary tract infections, history of other uh, upper or lower urinary tract complications in the past. Um, uh, one would also uh, uh, inquire about history, uh, about symptoms that might possibly suggest upper urinary tract chain, uh, uh, you know, uh, complications such as maybe loin pain, for example. Um, and also, um, a patient with a neurological 
um, um, injury would often have other pelvic organ complaints as well. So bowel problems, so we inquire about bowel-related, lower bowel symptoms. Uh, we are also, um, sexual dysfunction is common in this group, um, and hence covering the, very, the, the domains of sexual functions as well. Um, it's, all, it's, it's quite important to um, put these symptoms in perspective with the other complaints of the patient, uh, the other disabilities of the patient as well. The, the physical examination is, is a natural extension, um, um, a, a, a urogenital examination. Um, in a middle-aged man, for example, one would examine for an enlarged prostate. Um, uh, but a, but um, a physical examination is quite um, is an extension of of, of the history. Um, um, another um, sort of a, an extension of the history is sort of the bladder diary. So I do it like, for example, a frequency volume chart where where the where the patient is asked to record their um, their intake um, and their urinary output for a period of time. We generally say two or three days. It gives um, the um, uh, the clinician an opportunity to, uh, to have a real time assessment of the lower urinary tract symptoms, where the history alone is just a retrospective assessment. Uh, gives you an idea about their urinary frequency, uh, about how often they do experience urgency incontinence. Uh, it also uh, provides us an opportunity about what they drink. Some patients drink excessively, uh, thinking, for example, that it might be. A, 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 a urinary tract infection that they're trying to flush. Other patients drink quite limited, so on either extremes, it's a problem. Uh, and also what they drink. So, for example, we do know caffeinated beverages, fizzy drinks, uh, can, can exacerbate overactive bladder symptoms. This is an opportunity to evaluate those. Now, uh, when we start assessing the patient uh, through investigations, we do start with um, uh, urinalysis, um, um, screening for urinary tract infection, um, alluding to the point I mentioned earlier that uh, sometimes the urinary tract infection can mimic uh, the lower urinary tract symptoms uh, as a consequence of neurological disease, and uh, but yet the treatment is, is different. So it's uh, so a screening uh, of the UTI, um, the bladder scan, just as a post-word residual, um, ultrasonography uh, will provide you uh, a non-invasive assessment of not only the lower urinary tract, but the upper urinary tract, uh, and as well as the upper urinary tract. Um, and um, of course, desirable investigations uh, uh, would be include sort of a, uh, the bloods to, um, uh, to look at the, the renal function. Um, Europhilometry, especially in a middle-aged man with Parkinson's disease, quite uh, Useful test uh, to which provides a non-invasive assessment of of the of the urinary flow. Um, in specific situations, uh, one might uh, proceed with the urine culture or urine cytology, depending on the situation. Now, one of the things that uh, that 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 I think is important to discuss is about urodynamics. Uh, uh, the urodynamics provides a wealth of information about the about the pathophysiology behind the lower urinary tract problems. Um, it, it, it gives you um, documented evidence about whether there is a truth of activity, but the severity. Um, if there is a problem with voiding, it tells you if the problem with voiding is as a result of the truth of muscle that's poorly contracting during attempted voiding, or on the other hand, if it's a problem with outflow obstruction. Um, and, and so in those regards, it's quite useful. 
Now, uh, urodynamics also will provide you about whether there are other urinary tract pathologies, for example, a multi-parathorn with stress incontinence. It will help to assess that. If it's a mid-laid gentleman with, pocket, with, with a neurological disease, whether there is uh, an outlet obstruction, say, from an enlarged prostate gland, which is, uh, which is, which is possible in, a, in, in someone who has a neurological disease. Um, the, 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 the test is uh, invasive. Uh, there is the, and, and hence, it does, there are risks such as urinary tract infections, and, um, the, uh, and uh, the test is uh, uh, resource intense. So in, in some healthcare um, setups, uh, it's not possible to have a urodynamics in all patients. And hence, the, uh, the role of urodynamics um, in patients with neurological diseases uh, is something that's under regular uh, discussion. Um, and in general, um, it is felt that not every neurological patient actually requires the urodynamic assessment. Um, in some uh, individuals with neurological disease, who, have, who are who, uh, where it is thought that there's an increased risk for upper urinary tract damage, um, say renal impairment or renal failure, as one would see in say individuals with spinal cord injury or spina bifida, then certainly urodynamics is quite an important tool to assess what is the risk for upper urinary tract damage in that group. In contrast to patients with say progressive neurological conditions such as, say, multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease, where the risk is deemed to be less. Um, in individuals with, uh, who, have, um, um, who have tried for the first-line treatment uh, for, their, uh, for, their, uh, for their bladder overactive bladder symptoms and it's not responding, in such a group, once again, one would do your dynamics to understand the pathophysiology. And also, if one is contemplating further treatment, say, Botulinum toxin injections for the bladder, for example, uh, in which case uh, urodynamics would be uh, quite an, an important tool in that situation. Thank you, Jalesh, for taking me through those steps. My, that leads me nicely onto the next question, which is about who's going to do all of that. So you say in your review that a multidisciplinary approach is needed for management of these patients. Could you tell us what the primary goals for management are? Yes. Well, th- there's been a paradigm shift in the way that that lower urinary tract dysfunction in neurological patients is being looked at. And, and I think um, as a neurologist, I think I can say that during my training, when we look at symptoms of the patient, um, often um, the focus is on symptoms like pain and plasticity, which we as neurologists are, are very uh, well adept at managing. Um, some, uh, it, it's not often the case, however, that, uh, that, that symptoms such as uh, bladder symptoms or even bowel effectual symptoms are adequately addressed. Uh, but over the years, the shift has been, I think, that uh, more and more neurologists have been taking an interest and, 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 this, and the dysfunction in these areas are being addressed and being managed. Um, and this has opened up uh, uh, quite a bit of, of collaboration and hence, the, um, it is very much now a multidisciplinary approach involving uh, the neurologist, the physician, the urologist, primary care, and of course, the patient, um, the carer. Now, in this approach, of course, the goals of the management, I think number one clearly is, is going to be the safety of the upper urinary tract. And it is now becoming more evident that in individuals, certain neurological conditions, the risk for upper urinary tract damage is greater so, of course, the, the, the management in that situation would be different. Now, and, uh, and the test that I've mentioned earlier, 
would help to sort of uh, assess about whether about well, whether the, the upper urinary tracts are indeed at risk for there to be upper urinary tract damage or not. I'm, I'm going to say that before the era of catheterization, the commonest cause for death in patients with spinal cord injury was was actually upper urinary tract damage and, and renal failure. And we've moved on quite a bit with all the new treatments that have become available. And, and this reflects the multidisciplinary approach. Whereas in, in patients, say, with Parkinson's disease or, or other progressive conditions, such as hereditary ataxias, what's clear is that, that the risk for upper urinary tract damage is less than that group. The, the other goals, of course, are continence. And so there are quite a few approaches to the overactive bladder to help address that. And also it's the treatment and prevention of urinary tract infections, which is uh, often the bane for neurological patients. Thanks. Could you also give me a brief overview of the main strategies for management of lower urinary tract symptoms in patients with neurological disorders? There are ways to address both the storage dysfunction and avoiding dysfunction of the patient. So patients who have symptoms of, of an overactive bladder, i.e. urinary urgency, frequency with or without incontinence. The, the general approach would be to, to start out with reviewing the fluids. In some individuals, especially where it's seen that there's a low risk for upper tract damage when we look at behavioral therapy. But the first line treatment would be essentially anti-muscarinic uh, drugs or medications such as polpiridine, oxybutynin, phosphorine chloride, for example. There's onobotulinum toxin, which has perhaps revolutionized the management of the neurogenic bladder, especially in individuals with superficial activity. Of late, there are some newer treatment uh, modalities such as beta-3 receptor agonists and, uh, and neuromodulation, especially tibial neuromodulation. There are various surgical approaches for the overactive bladder, especially in individuals who failed to do well with the conservative treatment, for example, augmentation, for example. But Happily, the, the incidence of surgery or surgical, or for surgical interventions, of major, of major surgical interventions for, the, for storage dysfunction is, is coming down after the advent of so many other options, less invasive options for the overactive bladder. In your expert opinion, are there any promising diagnostic or therapeutic approaches in development that might benefit future patients? Well, well I'm going to say there's quite a bit of interest from the academic and research interest in the neurogenic bladder, and hence one would expect newer approaches in, in addressing the problem. And there are indeed a few areas where, where I think there is promise. Uh, for the future. The diagnostics, um, there's there's, there's quite a few tools that are now available. However, people are looking at non-invasive assessments to assess the the urinary tract. There's uh, neurophysiology, so either nerve conduction, so evoke potentials, EMGs were used uh, quite a bit in the past. In, In practice, their use is less nowadays. However, there's quite a bit of interest seeing whether neurophysiology could be used to assess, say, the effects of the, the functions of the afferent pathway, for example, the sensory pathways of the bladder, which are probably which are poorly uh, assessed in the current battery of tests that are available. People are looking at the role of, say, functional MRI to assess the upper urinary tract, so a non-invasive way of assessing the upper urinary tract to see if there is um, a, a risk for upper urinary tract damage. The, the role of, from a treatment perspective, 
I think there's quite a bit of interest nowadays in neuromodulation, and I, that that interest will uh, will progress. So it's not only tibial neuromodulation and and sacral neuromodulation, but also pudental neuromodulation. See what role that this has in in addressing the problem of lower urinary tract dysfunction in this group of patients. Likewise, it's uh, another area of interest is uh, the deep brain stimulation. It's uh, been noted that many of the studies where, where deep brain stimulation was used in the management of conditions like Parkinson's disease, that there are clear improvements in, in lower inner tract symptoms. And, and one uh, area that's being looked into is whether indeed this might have a role in the primary management. Now, there, there are, of course, interests in sort of tissue engineering, but I think there's quite a, a way to go before that comes into the, into the clinical realm. My final question in your view, what should the priorities be in terms of research or clinical practice to improve the lives of neurological patients with uh, lower urinary tract dysfunction? Well, I, I think from a, uh, from, from a clinical practice perspective, I think what's quite important is an early assessment of lower urinary tract symptoms and, and, and dysfunction in general. It, it does seem that early, it's probably only the tip of the iceberg of, of a cohort of neurological patients with lower urinary tract dysfunction that's currently being assessed properly. And, and I think in part, it's uh, to do with, uh, with uh, raising awareness amongst physicians who see neurological patients about lower urinary tract symptoms and how they're often eminently treatable with uh, a variety of treatment options that have been outlined earlier. And so I, th- I think it does involve getting physicians, especially the treating neurologists, uh, to uh, quite early on to be involved and collaborating with the urology team so that patients' dysfunction is discussed and treatment plans are put into, into practice. What's also important is the follow-up of the patient. And as it is the case for most neurological disorders, there are changes that happen with time, be it progressive neurological conditions, but even in static conditions, say spinal cord injury, well, we do know that, that the urinary tracts do change the time. And so it's not just a one-off sort of assessment, but it is perhaps a, a often a lifetime commitment to, to regularly review the, the, uh, the, the urinary tract dysfunction. Now, from a research side, I feel that to improve our ability to predict the likelihood of upper urinary tract damage is something that needs to be assessed. It is still a very much a gray area, and it's not with 100% certainty that one can predict in all patients, what is the risk? And so um, to developing new tools to assess upper urinary tract uh, functions and the risk for damage and in a non-invasive manner is a challenge needs to be taken on. Of course, it is continuing the quest for developing minimally and non-invasive treatments for the overactive bladder. We have uh, now, you know, we've left the era where after a first-line treatment of an antimuscarinic patient would then offer either a lifetime with, of, a, of an indwelling catheter or some major surgery to the urinary tract. And between these two ends, been, we've been able to fill quite a, a bit of that gap with various treatment options, such as neuromodulation or uh, other, uh, other types of medication. So, uh, however, it, it, it's, the priority should be developing new newer treatments uh, which address um, different receptors on the bladder that could be potentially effective for managing the overactive bladder. And um, I'm pleased to say that there's quite a bit of research occurring uh, throughout the world uh, to uh, help 
uh, with this quest. Jalesh Panikar, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me at the Lancet Neurology Podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure indeed.